Welcome to the Tour Junkies podcast. In this episode, we are interviewing DFS and gambling legend Peter Jennings. Now, if you don't know who Peter Jennings is, you should. He's the co-founder of Fantasy Labs and a big wig over at the Action Network. He's won a Millie Maker. He's won countless DFS contests over the years. He is a trailblazing DFS son of a gun, and he is going to give us some insight into his process, into his thoughts on playing tournament DFS golf and GPPs for the PGA Tour, his his weekly process, what he thinks about certain stats and game theory, all kinds of really great nuggets coming out of this interview with Peter Jennings if you are one that likes to play any form of really DFS golf. So uh, we're going to talk single entry, three max entry, mass entry, and just theory in general. He is a really sharp guy. We also learn about his uh, pro-am debut with Mr. Tiger Woods and how he managed to get through that. This is a great episode Please share this one. We'd love for you guys to share it and leave a five-star review on iTunes if you don't mind. We don't ask for reviews a whole lot, but they do help us. They help the podcast. So if you'd go to iTunes and leave a five-star review and give us an honest review and rating, that would be fantastic. So without further ado, let's get to Peter Jennings. What's up, golf addicts? David Barnett here of the Tour Junkies. I'm really excited about this conversation that we're about to have because it's not a PGA Tour Pro, it's not a caddy. All right, but you know this dude is well known in in the in the space that we are in, and he is Mr. Peter Jennings at CSU Ram eighty eight. Everybody knows Peter Jennings, and if you don't, you should. Peter, thanks for joining the Tour Junkies podcast for the very first time in all these years. We appreciate it, man. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Dave. Uh, excited to chat some golf. I'm missing the PGA Tour in a big way, oh. but it's fun to, to chat with you guys and. Uh, yeah, it'll be good to, to reminisce on DFS golf, and hopefully we have it back sooner rather than later. Yes, man, the quarantine. We, we should say, as this will likely be evergreen content, we are recording this during the COVID uh, quarantine right now. So that's we got no golf, no action. It's been brutal. Uh, also, if you're watching on YouTube, you may or may not notice that uh, the other gentleman in the screen is not Pat. His, his fa- facial features way too skinny. <laughs> to be Pat. He doesn't have the glazed over look in his eye. That would be Mr. Ben Little. You know him as the author of The Chalk Bomb and a fellow tour junkie. Ben, good to have you on the podcast tonight, filling in for Pat. Yes, thank you. Glad to be here. I resisted for a very long time, um, but glad (laughs) to make my debut with the DFS GOAT, and I know we're going to have a good time, and people are probably going to get a lot out of this. That is true. Peter, I, I mean, I should tell you, I mean, listen, Peter is the co-founder of Fantasy Labs. He's big wig at the Action Network. He's won a Millie Maker. Been to countless live final events for all kind of DFS sports, just general DFS tournament stud. But now, Peter, you can add this to your resume that, that you got Ben to come on a podcast because Ben <laughs> really likes to be behind the scenes. He likes the written stuff. He doesn't like his, he doesn't like his, his, his person out there among the public. Um, but when I said, Hey, 
I may I may need you to fill in for Pat with uh, with Peter Jennings. He's like, I'm in. So now that, could also, that could also mean he's gonna like be like showing up at your house one day, which would be weird. But um, yeah, you should you should add that to your add that to your. I hear Denver's bio. nice. <laughs> Denver is nice, and you know, the ball goes farther here in Colorado, boys. And I, I certainly I need that That's here right. in Colorado. Um, all right, Peter, we got to get right into this, man. Uh, the very first question that uh, me and Pat and Ben were all really curious about is how you avoided um, shitting your pants playing with Tiger Woods just a few weeks ago in a PGA Tour Pro-Am event. You, you have to tell us, like, about leading up to that and just give us something. Like, you got a story. What's been your go-to that you've, you've, you've shared from that day? Oh, I did shit my pants. I didn't sleep the night before. Uh, <laughs> never been more nervous in my entire life. Um, it was a lot of fun. I mean, the first the night before we had like the pairings dinner, it was really cool. Uh, you know, I was sitting at a table and they had the cards out and, you know, Condoleezza was Peter Jennings and Dr. Hung as a you know group. And they're like, who the hell is this Peter Jennings guy? And my wife goes, <laughs> oh, he's a real asshole. And they're like, really? And yeah, it was a, it was a funny, funny situation. Um, but yeah, it was a surreal experience. Um, I, I was really nervous about it, um, just in general. Like like I mentioned, I didn't sleep the night before and played a ton of golf. I played some high-stakes gambling matches, and nothing was as nerve-wracking as that. And the funny part is I started off awesome, played, you know, I'm like an 8-10 handicap. Um, I have one really big miss, which showed its ugly face at the end of the round. But started off playing great, shot a 39 on the front and then just completely imploded on the back nine. So uh, it was <laughs> nerve-wracking. Respectable. Yeah, I hit the ball, like, awesome. Like, I drove the ball great on the front nine, played, you know, like 95 out of 100 for my capability, and then just imploded on the back. But uh, it was fun, man. Um, Dr. Rice was great. Tiger was super fun. He was helping me read putts. Uh, it, was a, it was a really cool experience, so. Uh, it was nerve-wracking for sure. The first tee, I've never been more nervous. Um, and, yeah, yeah it, was a, it was a wild experience. And Tiger, none of us made any putts, and that came to fruition for Tiger, too. He, he did make the cut, but finished dead last of all the players that made the cut. He just couldn't putt out there. It's Riviera's, of course, I've been fortunate enough to play a couple times, and uh, it's tough out there. So how did you, how did you get that spot? Yeah, <laughs> I certainly was the uh, the person who stood out. Like, who the hell is Peter? Jennings? Why is he in this group? I won Tiger's uh, charity poker tournament at Tiger Jam in 2017. So, oh, nice. or, was it, yeah, 2017, I believe. Right after, uh, yeah, basically right before he had that infamous uh, DUI picture. So I didn't know when the round was going to come to fruition, and it ultimately came together for the the 2020 Pro. But that's, that's wow. how I got it. That is awesome, dude. So any, like, was there any moment where, like, you're, I mean, was, like, Tiger, like, cracking jokes with you? Was he, was he, like, how friendly, how, how much were you guys talking? Was there, is there a story he told that you're just like, God, I can't believe anything? Yeah, like there's, there's a couple cool stories. Um, so his caddy for the day was actually a buddy of mine. He's uh, friends with a buddy of mine, and uh, we'd hung out before. He had won the experience for caddying for Tiger. So they had all, like, the the privileges for that that day like were, were situations that were won in different events with the tiger woods wow. foundation and uh so they were gambling on, on all these different shots and uh 
on a part three, I believe it is hole six, I want to say hole five or six. Uh, basically, the, the caddy and his dad are betting back and forth. And Tiger had like a 205-yard, uh, you know, part three. And then the three of us, you know, Dr. Rice actually had the closer, but uh, we had like a 150-yard shot and Dr. Rice had like a 130-yard shot. And it was who was going to be closer to the pen, the three of us, you know, could one of us get closer than Tiger or Tiger? And uh, the dad stupidly took the three of us. And Tiger <laughs> literally came like three inches from a hole in one. And oh was just, God. you know, busting, busting this guy for, for taking us. That was one of my better shots. I put it to like 12 feet. Um, but yeah, Tiger then told the story. He didn't have a single hole in one uh, from 2000 through 2010 when he was playing his best golf. How crazy is that? Uh, yeah, he has like 21 hole in ones or something like that. And he didn't have a single one from 2000 to 2010. So that was fun. And I had a heckler. He thought that was hilarious. So yeah, he was cool. Dude, that's awesome. Um, really happy for you to be able to do that. You're, you're, you're a good guy in this DFS street that we run. So uh, good to see good things happen to good people. You talked about gambling on the course. Personally for you, you said you played some high stakes games. Personally for you, what's your favorite on course game to, to play? Uh, if you're playing with friends or maybe you're playing, not playing with friends. And then what's your, what's your drink on the course? Ooh, uh, two great questions. Uh, we play a lot of banker, which uh, I think is a pretty good gambling game. Uh, it does favor lower handicaps, especially if part threes are never stroke holes because uh, we triple in the air. Uh, but that's, huh. that's a really fun game. Uh, we've done some high stakes scrambles. I've seen the most action actually flow on the scrambles because there's a little less pressure. Uh, so those have been fun. And I normally drink Greyhounds. Um, occasionally, I'll drink beer. White Claws got really popular over the last year. Uh, you know, the trannies are, are definitely a uh -huh. drink of choice, especially going down to Whisper Rock. I like those quite a bit. I'm not a huge grape juice fan. I like grapefruit a lot better, so that's why I said the Greyhound. But uh, a combination of, of those drinks. And I definitely play best with, like, two drinks. I think that's, like, yeah. that may be what I should have done with Tiger. I didn't have any alcohol. Maybe yeah. I should have... Uh, pivoted to some alcohol in the back nine dude i would have taken a valium or something dude you gotta you gotta calm that down uh, so i'm so nervous so i'm like nervous. you I, I don't i don't play that well either with too many drinks like two is about good um so all right that's good man all right so i think i think one thing that i want to get out of the way before we get real technical is you know you've been doing this you've been grinding the dfs thing for for a while and and you've won you've proven that you have an edge in a lot of different sports, right? So, and, and I know this is not the first time you've, you've come on a podcast and you're going to give advice or you're going to talk about your process or you're going to answer some questions. Why would you, so for the listener, like tell them like, why would you come on a show like this and give away your advice on winning tournaments? Uh, and are there parts of your process or theory that uh, you don't share, you know, in order to kind of retain that edge? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something I've been asked a lot about just in general with DFS. Um, and it's something that, you know, I've tried to maintain authenticity throughout. Um, certainly, I'm trying to win and I, I do try to, you know, make money playing DFS and, and betting. But um, I've also really tried to grow the game. And I think that's really important. And I've had incentives to do that, you know, co-founding Fantasy Labs was involved with DraftKings for a while. Um, so I, I do have some incentives, but I also love DFS and I love sports betting. And I think, 
you know, if you can grow the game and, and do that in an authentic way, that there's going to be long-term value that's created. So that to me is, is really important. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of the tour junkies and what you guys have done and uh, anything I can do to help, you know, the industry and to grow the game, I think ultimately will not only be profitable for me, but um, it's fulfilling and it's uh, something that I think is really important. So that's the approach I've taken and I try to be candid, uh, you know, I don't want to, I'm not going to like go exactly into like how I'm awaiting everything, uh, you know, to the T, but happy to go into things that I think um, are, you know, there's misconceptions out there and, you know, I'm still learning too. So it's always fun to chat with people who know what they're doing and to try to learn. So growing the game is the, the main answer there. And uh, certainly, you know, there's always benefits to, to learning from other people as well. 100%. And we know that the game changes too, right? I mean, I, even since we first, we first started, you know, really with golf back in 2015. I mean, the, the strategy and the process has changed a ton just since then. So, you know, I, I think for, for our sake, you know, our listeners are obviously golf nerds, golf addicts, you know, we want to stick to the PGA. So, you know, it, in we'll frame it in the PGA tour, which, you know, Peter is a, a huge fan of. He's already said that, but but we know that ourselves too. That he's a big he's a big PGA Tour DFS player, uh, big fan, very successful in it. So we'll we'll keep our answers and kind of our questions framed around the the PGA Tour DFS game. And that being said, like let's just start off with uh, just in general, what are some common mistakes that when you're uh, talking to DFS golf players or you're scrolling? You know, you're, you're scrolling the, um, the, you know, fantasy labs or ownership, you know, once the lineups are locked or whatever that is. What do you think some common mistakes are that you see a lot of DFS golfers make? Um, and and what on the flip side, what are some mistakes that you see big time, like higher stakes players or, you know, DFS touts make? So kind of you're, you're, you're just starting out and as well as your guys who have been doing it for a minute. Hey, hope you're enjoying this episode of the podcast, but I do want to let our listeners know that you, everyone lives with chronic pain, right? Chronic pain is something that we all deal with, maybe if you're not like 22 or something, but I'm 36, I think, yep, and you know, I have regular pain up around my shoulders, up around my neck area, keep a lot of tension in there, so you probably have some regular ongoing pain as well, and our friends at Omax Health, they've been supporting the podcast for a while now. They, they've got incredible CBD stuff going on. The cryo-free CBD roll-on developed by Omax Health is something you need to try just for nagging muscle, joint pain, or just long-lasting recovery and relief. It's natural. It's non-prescription. It's got a triple-action pain relief roll-on that will block the pain receptors, reduce the inflammation. It's the best stuff. The best part is it's all natural, 100%, CBD-powered. And it works within 10 minutes of application and lasts up to eight hours. Now, I use this in the mornings, especially when I wake up and I feel like I've got that extra tension in my chest and neck area. And right now, Omax Health is offering our listeners 20% off a full bottle of cryo-free CBD pain relief roll-on and free shipping. It also applies towards any other product site-wide that you purchase. So you go to omaxhealth.com, enter code TOURJUNKIES. That is O-M-A-X-Health.com and enter code TOURJUNKIES to get your 20% off cryo-freeze and anything else site-wide. Kyle Stanley, PGA Tour Pro, uses cryo-freeze as well, both on and off the golf course. They've got a ton of great product reviews, 95% five-star reviews, in fact. And uh, yeah, 
Go see what people are saying about it. It's amazing. We like it, and we really appreciate Omax Health supporting the Tour Junkies podcast. All right, that's it. Let's get back to it. Yeah, I think ownership has gotten more and more important. So I'd say early in the you know DFS golf industry, I had a big edge just jamming in guys that I thought had a lot of equity. Uh, looking at betting markets, I think was a big advantage. And I, I certainly wasn't sophisticated, didn't really know what I was doing, but fortunately uh, had a little bit of success. And I think people weren't even aware of like betting markets and matchups and things of that nature. So that was the initial strategy. And now people are much more aware of that. And I think a big mistake that a lot of DFS golf people make is they, they jam in, you know, all the chalk players in one lineup. And you see that, you see tons of duplicates. And especially if you're playing golf, you know, DFS golf tournaments, I think that's a huge mistake. And, and I do think that you can get away with playing chalk in a, a lot of ways. And I certainly play guys that are heavily owned, but having a bunch of heavily owned guys together, I think is one of the biggest mistakes you can make, especially when you're playing top heavy tournaments, which I see that quite a bit, you know, the millionaire makers, the lower buy and stuff, yeah. you see that. And even in the higher stake stuff, that's a little more top heavy. Uh, you know, jamming in just like all the clear chalk, uh, especially in tournaments, you know, like the majors of the players or a tournament where pricing comes out early. It's pretty easy to identify the mispriced guys. And you want to, you know, get those those players in some of your lineups. Uh, and, and, you know, you can take a stance on certain players for sure. But putting them all together, I think, is a really big error, especially in this you know, current kind of DFS ecosystem that we're living in. Uh, people have gotten so much sharper and just eating all that chalk in one lineup is a, is a big mistake. Yeah, in 2015, it feels like nobody talked about ownership. Or, or, and maybe even like a part of that was nobody really had a great idea on what ownership was going to be because there were like, you know, there was nowhere near the resources, right? There was nowhere near the number of podcasts or number of people talking guys up or, you know, whatever it was. It was so variable to me. Um, back then but I, i'm glad to hear you say that you think it's uh it's more important than ever um that's something i usually tend to harp on our show but um that's, that's whatever you do don't ask pat for uh ownership projections <laughs> yeah the worst ownership projector <laughs> in the world uh, is pat it's Bear. hard sometimes it's hard but yeah i do think it's really yeah. really important now what do you think is but you say like a chalk lineup so define that for um like define that for the casual listener. So what would, if, if we're picking six guys, is there a, is there a, do you look at like an overall ownership presented percentage where you're adding up the, the ownership of every player? Or are you saying no, like, you know, if I have three guys in that lineup that are over 20%, you know, I consider that a chalky lineup or what, like, how do you define what that chalky lineup that, that being too much chalk? Yeah, I would say having all six guys like over 20% would be really bad or, or you know, having, you know, the 60% on guy, the 40% on guy, three guys or 20%, like a 15% guy. I think there's plenty of lineups. And I actually kind of in my process and you know, some of the weeks I've had the most success, I have, you know, the 40% on guy, 20% on guy, but then I have a couple guys that are, you know, 2%, 3%, 4% or whatever. So to yeah. me, it's, it's about how your lineup works together. And you know, there's a reason that guys are really heavily owned. Oftentimes they have the most equity and I think it's fine to play those guys. Uh, and you can gain leverage first in the field by having some of those guys in your lineup, as long as you have some players that are lower owned. So to me, it's, it's about how the six golfers work together versus like the collective percentage. And I mean, there's a lot of data out there. There's, I mean, this is definitely the art part of DFS, which is really fun. Um, and there's different strategies around this, but for me, 
I feel good about my teams if I have a couple people who are low owned or like if I had, you know, six guys who are all eight to 12%, I'd feel fine about that too. Yeah. What, talk about a, a high, like a, a player in your mind, a DFS player in your mind uh, when it comes to golf that you, you think is like, you know, if, if you were to say, I think this player is possibly the best player out there that other than me, if I'm Peter Jennings, like who do you think is the best, Who's a name on the on the you know on the DK leaderboards that you look at and you go, that's a really good, that's a really sharp PGA player. I mean, I think Empire Maker is a really sharp DFS player just in general, and he's playing super high stakes. He only plays one lineup. Um, Bry 75, I think, does a great job. The Godfather's firing super hard. Um, there's a bunch of guys. I mean, I have a lot of respect for like Notorious. He goes way back. Um, I think you guys are sharp. I mean, there, there's people in like the, just the DFS media industry that, that I think are some pretty sharp players too. Um, what do you, know, you think those guys like, in, like Empire Maker and, and Godfather, what do you think they do well? Like, what do you think they – do you, do you have it kind of figured out what they do well? Empire plays one lineup almost every slate, and sometimes during the majors he'll play some tournament lineups, but he, he does a great job putting together the highest equity team. So he doesn't care nearly as much about ownership because he's getting so much volume down in three bands, you know, 50, 50 head to heads, you know, high stakes tournaments. Um, and he does play like what I said before, like he, some weeks will have a very chalky lineup, but he's very good at identifying the highest equity golfers relative to their price. So he does a great job of that. And the Godfather is similar. Um, but he does, he does mix it up more. Um, He's been playing the highest stakes in DFS golf for a long time, so I yeah. respect his sustainability playing kind of the high stakes, those lead stakes. Those are those are names that I fear as well, um, probably more so than you do. Uh, all right, so for you, like talk us through in general, like your weekly process, like you know, prices come out, or or do you is there you know what are you doing before prices come out? What does your weekly process look like now? from the time you start preparing for a PGA Tour event until lineup lock on Thursday? Yeah, so I think a big thing throughout the whole year is just making sure you're keeping up with data. Um, I want to make sure I have everything inputted from the previous tournaments. Uh, challenges come from picking up information on like Asian tours, European tours. That stuff's really important. Um, so making sure that you have the most up-to-date uh, data set is a, a critical uh, aspect. And then, yeah, pricing comes out. You start doing work. Uh, I look heavily at the weather. I think that's a, a critical element. Uh, you're obviously doing analysis on the course. Uh, you know, a lot of times doing this for a while, you kind of know, okay, it's yeah. Harbor Town. Like, I know I'm looking at an accuracy-type course, or it's Torrey Pines. Like, I'm going to need some guys who can hit it a long ways. Um, there's definitely course fits that are really important. And then, yeah, you start your process and, you know, I run a model and start looking at the model relative to market prices and start trying to figure out, okay, I'm higher on, you know, these players versus, you know, the market and identifying uh, where I think I can find some leverage and yeah, you start building teams. Uh, I ultimately have projections that I use and start looking through optimal lineups and uh, depending on the week, like if there's a big weather angle, I'll start baking that in and looking at teams that really capitalize on the weather angle versus just the optimal lineups. And uh, yeah, it's, it's dynamic to the week, but uh, it's a similar process. I think the data set's really important, uh, running the model, evaluating the market, and then looking through the DFS prices and optimizing teams is the 
kind of base of the process. So, you know, something we get asked all the time, I'm sure you do too, is, is your player pool, right? So talk through your theory on player pool, how you, how you narrow it down, how you decide how many are going to be in there, um, and how do you eliminate guys that you may be on the fence with? Great question. I wish I had a more concrete answer to this, uh, but I think it's dynamic to the week. Sometimes I'll play more golfers than others, but uh, most of the time, it really depends. I, I guess the hard part about like your player pool is like the roster construction you want. So this year I've been super high on Rory. I thought he was kind of a, in a standard deviation or he's outside basically everyone else with the exception of maybe John Rahm. Those two for sure were just kind of head and shoulders above. So when Rory's playing, I know I'm going to be jamming in a bunch of Rory. can look through my lineups throughout this year. Uh, I played just so much of him. And when he's in the field, that kind of limits who you can pair him with. Uh, you can't, you know, have yeah. a bunch of studs with Rory in your lineup. And if you are having Rory, you're making a lot of lineups, that's going to lead you to having more cheap guys. So uh, certain weeks I'd have a smaller player pool based on roster construction. And then, you know, weeks where I was building maybe more balanced teams or there wasn't like a clear cut player that I was going to be building around, I might have a little bit bigger of a player pool. And then you have to make the choices. Like I'm more open, especially if I'm playing 150 lineups too having uh more golfers that are closer together just to see you know sometimes i don't know if a guy's gonna be five percent or like under one percent owned and i'm willing to throw a couple of those guys in a lot of different lineups uh just trying to get leverage versus the field and sometimes i'm surprised as well sometimes a guy i think might be five percent owned or whatever comes into like 15 percent yeah and i'm much happier if i played a, a variety of golfers where i can get a little bit of leverage What's your, if you were to put a number on the player pool, you, you know, you, you mentioned it's dynamic and I, that makes a lot of sense, right? So if it's, you know, I'm sure there's a number of like, this is as absolutely as tight as I'm going to get on a player pool. And this is as loose as I'm going to get on that player pool. What, what would those numbers look like? Depend, obviously depending on the week. Yeah, let me, uh, I'm actually pulling up some data here so I can, I should be able to tell you uh, exactly what I'm Of course done. you most are. Of the most of the weeks I'm playing like 25 or so golfers, I'd say. Sometimes it's less like for, you know, like if it's a WGC and there's only so many golfers, I'll have a much smaller play pool. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I'd say it's normally in that range. And sometimes I'll play a lot. Like if there's a variety of guys who grade out really similarly and in terms of their projection that I think are all going to be somewhat low-owned, I'll kind of throw them all in there. But um, let's see. Like for the, play, the players. Um, all right. Please. players. Yeah. Oh gosh. How are you guys looking in the players, by the way, while I look into this data? Uh, Is that a actually, devastating? We were looking pretty bad. So it's it probably, <laughs> although, although if you're looking pretty bad on a Thursday, that usually means you're going to be okay. Like I know every time I'm looking great yeah. on a Thursday, I end up totally, my teams will shit the bed on the weekend. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. We, we weren't looking great after day one, but it was only day one. I think. What was it, what's, what's been your guys' best tournament so far this year? Uh, this year, um, probably the Genesis. The Genesis. I had a hundred percent Adam Scott that week. Oh baby, uh, that was... <laughs> think, that's um, awesome. I think I think yeah, that was management. a good one. I think waste management was it last year. It was Honda for me. This year it was mm -hmm. waste. I think it's been waste management so far. I played 76 players in the uh, players, which is way more than I'll ever play. Uh, yeah. And the Billionaire Maker, because I had a bunch of guys at like 0.7%. So 
the week before, I played 35 players. The week before, I played, uh, let's see here. I played 16 players the week before. 16? So, yeah. So I, it really is dynamic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The week before, I played 16 players. I had Harold Varner, 87%, Sung Jay. 75% Russell Knox, 75%. That was the week that Sung Jay won. Um, so it really depends. I, I, I mix things up based on kind of the conviction that I have relative to uh, the tournament and, and kind of just the different roster constructions. I mean, on average, how, how many lineups are you playing in those weeks? Most, of, most weeks I play 150 lineups okay. almost every week. So that's a, that's a you know, I think that – one thing that I've heard a couple of really sharp players um, say recently that I think a lot of listeners would be surprised to hear is, is that you have weeks where you played 60 something players or 70 something players. Like there are weeks yeah, where I, these guys are playing, you know, a lot of sharp people are playing 50 players. You know, you just have a bunch of the six K guys, or you've got a few seven K that you've got sprinkled in there in the event that your core were to hit. Right. Right. So for the players, I was 56% Rom, 52% Fitzpatrick, 48% Morikawa, 48% DeChambeau, 36% Rory, a bunch of Sungjae, uh, 33% Matsuyama. So I, I still had big positions, but then, like, yeah, I had, let's see here, I had a bunch of guys that I owned 0.7%. Like, I had, like, 30 guys that I had, like, very, very little. So, you yep. know, you're looking at guys like Kisner, I point seven, Ortiz, I point seven, Russell Henley, Troy Merrick, Bradley, just on the way down. And some of these guys come in super low, like Bryce Garnett, I had point seven, he was point three percent owned. Um, and that's not always how I do things, but I did have a lot of different combinations of guys um, I normally wouldn't necessarily do. I think this is kind of a one off. Um, and this was the millionaire maker as well, where I was messing around quite a bit. I did uh, a lot of different things trying to leave money on the table. And I just messed around a lot more than I usually do uh, with that specific contest. And for like the signature hole, which is a much higher buy-in, I had 21 players, but I still had a bunch of teams. So I normally wouldn't do that. I think that was a specific millionaire maker. Uh, move. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. Um, one last question for me before we get to Ben, and this is a hot topic, right? Is uh, your thoughts on course history and how predictive is course history to you? Course history is certainly predictive. Um, how predictive? Uh, I, I think it's predictive. It, the hard part is okay, how do you differentiate course history and course fit? And how far back are you going with course history? Uh, I am not willing to wait, like, you know, course history that's outside of, like, the last five years as heavily as, like, some other factors. But course history in the last five years, to me, has value. Uh, and it's dynamic to the, to the golfer as well and, and the course and a lot of things. Like, Augusta, for example, like, that is the holy grail of course history. I'm going to wait course history at the masters more than I am at other courses, you know, Harbor town an accuracy course. I'm going to wait course history there more than other courses. So uh, it, it's, it's not a one size fits all dynamic. And I actually back test and look at things 
relative to how predictive course history is week to week. And also the hard part about course history is like taking that plus course fit and how you weight those and the overlap there. Yeah. So what are your, what are your, I, I, I've heard some of your guys' takes, like who's the biggest <laughs> course history guy right now for junkies? Um, <laughs> it's definitely Pat. He's it used to be Pat. I was going to, I was going to say it was Pat for sure. What do you mean he used but, to But he's – honestly, he's kind of come off that take because he completely faded Bubba at the Genesis. Um, who is the course history person the next yeah. week that he completely faded? Yeah, but that could have been, that could have been for ownership purposes. He's a, he's a major course history believer. I mean, I am too, but um, he, he's, he's, he'll, he'll, like, get in fights on Twitter about it. Like, he'll, he'll you know, he'll go at you with it. People but saying it's worth nothing, that's just – insane to me but i think it's very it's much more dynamic to the course the situation the player like yeah you know yeah like henrik stenson this year you know going into the arnold palmer like what how good of a golfer do you think henrik stenson is now relative to when he had the great history like it's right it's it's so dynamic and you always have to be thinking about the different situations and that that's what makes it fun that's why i think there's a lot of uh edge in DFS golf still and it's not okay course history should be 20% of your model every single week nah. yeah I think the one thing a lot of people miss about course history is um, you know if you run a million simulations on one particular course like someone is going to have a bunch of good finishes in a row, whether they're a good course fit or not, just because that's the way the math works. And that's something that, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, if you play so many iterations of this thing, someone is going to have good course history. Someone is going to have bad course history and there's going to be a whole lot of people in between, you know, no matter what the course is or what the event is. And I think that's the part that a lot of people uh, miss as far as course history is concerned. No, I totally agree. I think that's well said. And again, it's it's much more dynamic than people realize that. Yeah. And I do think it matters. Like if you're just throwing out course history, I think you're clearly doing it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I. I I wanted to go back to questions from uh, when David asked you about uh, your process and looking at the weather. So take like um, the API this year when there was, you know, supposed to be this huge wind weather split and everybody and their mama loaded up on the AM Thursday guys, afternoon Friday guys. And then like, I don't remember exactly what it was. I want to say it was seven or eight of the top 10 were all in the other ways. Um, when you're looking at stuff like that, you know, like if, if you see some kind of weather edge where you go like, you know, like 60, 40, 70, 30, or you commit a hundred percent to a weather wave or how do you approach that? Like if, if you can see a pretty defined edge one way or the other, yeah, so I, I will go pretty heavy on the weather angles. Um, it's one of the few correlation moves that you can make. Obviously, you have like course fit, but you know other DFS sports have a lot more correlation than DFS golf, which is fun in its own way. You know, not just people build lineups very similar in, in different sports because of correlation. But when there is a weather angle, 
I'll go pretty heavy on that. So I'll make teams that are just exclusive to the weather angle. And then I'll run, you know, optimizers around just what I think the best teams are. A lot of times it'll end up skewing more towards the weather angle because that's baked into my, my model. But uh, I do try to weight that. And then one thing I will do, you know, there's a strong or deemed to be a strong weather angle and it looks like it's just going to be, you know, some adverse conditions. I'll, I'll make other teams on the complete opposite side in the event that something changes, you know, especially if there's rain or, uh, you know, conditions that, you know, where, you know, things could pause or whatever else, like just stacking guys with similar tee times. If there does happen to be a weather angle, that's one of the few correlation plays that you can take. And I think that's a pretty sharp thing to do in tournaments. Yeah. Um, so at Fantasy Labs, uh, you guys famously don't use strokes game data. Um, why is that? And uh, do you think it gives you a particular edge um, at certain events, say like the British Open or events where there's going to be more you know, European tour players playing? Yeah, so that is something that, you know, I think we're in the process of changing. Uh, you know, when Colin Davey first came on, I thought it was a really unique approach. Uh, you know, the challenge with the course game data is that you aren't getting other tours. So the adjusted round data makes a lot of sense in that regard. But personally, I do look at a lot of the course or the strokes game data. We now have the you know PGA Tour partnership and we're doing a lot of work around the strokes game data. And I hope that we'll have even more data available in general from the PGA Tour as they invest more in this. I mean, they're putting so much, uh, they're putting a lot of resources into TrackMan data. And I think we'll get stuff like ball speed and smash factor, and a lot of cool stuff from the tour ultimately uh, that I think is really beneficial. So uh, we, we need to upgrade our golf product. That's something that, I'm excited about we now have a new commitment to uh, really focusing again on fantasy labs. Uh, you know, the action network, we've taken a big focus on sports betting, but we're reinvesting resources, especially on the developer side. So I'm excited about the future of building some new golf products. And, uh, you know, personally, I do have strokes gain data in uh, my own personal model. So I think it's really important. Uh, you know, I do think that the adjusted ground data does a lot better uh, you know, like the Puerto Rico Open or, you know, European tour stuff, like where the strokes gain data is going to be incomplete because, you know, a lot, of, a lot of stuff happens with golfers that are competing in those on other tours. But uh, a lot of the PGA Tour stuff, the strokes gain data has a lot of predictive power and it's certainly something you should be looking at. Gotcha. Um, in your opinion, is um, long-term form, so like one-year moving average or short-term form, recent form, more important, say like last uh, three weeks of play? Great question. Um, I think recent form is clearly more predictive, uh, but you also have long-term and regression that you have to factor in. So it doesn't answer your question at all. They're both clearly important. And again, it's another dynamic question. Um, and you can see it. Sometimes you have to make some calls like, Justin Rose, I think, is a very interesting one for this most recent season. He clearly fell off to a degree, and like what happened there? You have the he suffered you know, me so hard. Club days. change, and like the <laughs> equipment stuff. Like what? What's going on? That's a really tricky one, um, and you just kind of have to bake that stuff in. And then you have a lot of like 
the one thing I love right now is I think there's so many great young players and how do you, you know, grade those like someone like Colin Morikawa, who I've been on basically every single week, uh, you know, the recent form is great, but you have no long-term form other than uh, like his college pedigree and stuff. So it gets interesting. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, again, another dynamic question. Um, but you want to regress, too. Like, you can't just strictly rely on the last couple of weeks, especially if you have a sample. But there are dynamic situations that I think are important to, to take into account. Tiger's been someone that's really tough for me. Uh, Brooks Kepka is probably the toughest guy to project for me. When you uh, start looking yep. at all his results and then you see his major results, that's something that I think is so tough. And there's differing opinions on that. Henrik Stenson's another one. Uh, I've never really been a – while I've been playing DFS, I haven't played that much Mickelson other than the Open where he had that huge weather advantage. He's a tricky guy. Um, it's tough. I, I think that's a great question that there's not a concrete answer. But in general, if I had to, to, to pick a side, I think short-term form is more important. But you, you've got to be aware of regression too. Well, I, yeah, as, as much as David hates to hear it, I think you uh, are, in fact, right on your Bryson call from two or three years ago. <laughs> uh, God. I was wrong, and then I was I was so heavy Bryson um, and for oh, a lot yeah. of reasons. And Bryson's actually – Bryson's one of the guys who's uh, really helped me out this year. And I think Bryson is right there as a top five, ten golfer in the world right now, which is crazy. He yeah. is He is really trended, and – that's someone we've had, uh, yeah, I've had quite a bit of exposure to just in general. I was going to say, I think the danger with that short-term, long-term thing for most people is more is more ignoring completely the long-term. Like, like I mean, Peter kind of alluded to that, but I think it's convincing. Oh, you don't want to do that. That's stupid. Like, right. You can't I, I just think ignore I, the long-term. Yeah, I think that's I think that's what people have a hard time doing. People is, have a recency bias. You're better off in bias, general. Yeah. In DFS, you're better off betting on regression. So a lot of times, you're better off taking guys who might not have played as well recently. But at the same time, I do think that that's very predictive. So it's it's a trade-off, um, trying to be aware of the recency bias. And the best scenarios are when you can get guys who just barely missed the cut or, you know, had like a 50th place finish and like they putted terribly or something. Like those are the, the really strong signals. And like I feel so bad for Matsuyama. I mean – he was hitting the ball like he was having like a legendary mm-hmm. ball striking performance over the last month and finally puts together a round where he puts well and the <laughs> tournament gets canceled. So there's a lot of factors, yeah. but uh, the short term, long term thing is uh, an art that, uh, you know, everyone's trying to figure out. Speaking of which, do you think um, most people in the golf DFS industry, do you think they play guys like, Hideki and Lucas Glover and Ben on and all the and Keegan. Do you think they play them too often? I'm probably guilty of playing Ben on too much. I can, I know that. It's one, it's a, it's something I like to, I, I in general lean more towards those guys. I think ball striking is more predictive, but you can look at certain, I mean, Keegan Glover, all those guys. Yeah. Like, it's not just you're not you're not going to all of a sudden see this crazy regression to the mean in putting. Like those guys are all like definitely significantly average putters. Um, yeah. It's hard. I mean, 
you start looking at, like Rio's an interesting one. Is he really an awful putter? I don't play. Like, he probably is a pretty darn bad putter, but how bad? Like, it's tough. That's a uh, that's the easy easy one that people have started to figure out. Um, but there's still maybe people might be at this point like overvaluing the bad putters uh, to your guys' point. Yeah. When you're going through your process, um, are you really separating the tee to green skills from the putting or are you just viewing it as kind of total strokes gained or, or how are you breaking that out every week? Well, I think there's certain courses where putting matters more. I think there's other courses where putting matters less and there are certain courses where like three putt avoidance is really critical. I think, you know, you talk about Genesis I've been playing that course and just watching, you know, Morikawa freaking five putted 11. Uh, like, Morikawa is an interesting one to the putting question. Like, just to, to stay on this topic, do you guys think Morikawa is going to be a bad putter for his career? It doesn't seem like it. I'm going to vote no. Yeah. At least I now. hope not. <laughs> I love Morikawa. I think he's so good. He's been a bad putter, though, too. this year. I do, too. I, I think but, it's fair to say Hoblin is a – uh, sub-average putter and horrible around the greens. Yeah. Right. Around the greens, though, should have more signal, right? And that's the thing, too. Like, Rory is an exceptional scrambling and sand player. And I think Rory gets a bad rap for being a bad putter. I don't think he's necessarily a good putter, but he's a pretty good putter, especially close. Um, he's just not great, you know, from like 8 to 12 feet relative to some of the elite players. And he has so many of those looks that if you're sweating him, it's just like, man, how many birdie putts is Rory going to miss? Whereas like Matsuyama's scrambling stats aren't quite as good. And I think a lot of that has to do with just his inability to, to putt in, in certain cases. But yeah, yeah, I think week to week, there's courses I'm looking at where, you know, like Augusta, for example, it's just really about three putt avoidance. Genesis, another one like Bubba, you know, I don't think he's like an amazing putter, but historically Bubba's Bob been great at, you know, avoiding three putts. Um, stuff like that, I think, is valuable. So it's, again, another dynamic stat that, I, you know, I'm looking at. I do think tee to green stats are much more predictive in general. Um, but, it, again, it comes down to the specific tournament and how I'm doing. Because some tournaments, putting really does matter. Um and obviously putting matters every week. If you just look at it in the back, and like if you look at who's at the top of the leaderboard, it's the guys who are putting well. But predicting who's going to putt well is the name of the game, and that that can be tricky. And, you know, predicting who's going to strike the ball well is a lot easier to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that win stats are actually predictive, and do you believe um, in strokes gained win play? So I think that's somewhat noisy, but I want to believe in the wind stuff, and I've tried to dig into it more. It's just very hard to back test that data and get good information. Because I think wind also plays differently depending where you are. Like having played in Florida yeah. in the south, I mean, you guys know, like watching the ball move uh, with humidity when there's wind is way different than, you know, playing here in Colorado when it's 50 mile an hour wind. It's totally different. Um and, you know, it makes sense. Like, okay, this guy's a low ball hitter. He grew up playing wherever. Like, he should be a good player. Like, you know, I think of, like, Mark Fishman or something like that. Yeah. It makes sense that some of those guys could be good win players. But I've had some trouble uh, back testing that, that stuff. And it is a tricky thing. I do think there's certain players who certainly are better. But as a whole, like, evaluating bad win players versus 
you know, uh, Goodwin players is a, a tricky thing. Because I've done stuff looking at, like, you can look at, like, you know, how high the ball goes for players, like their apex. There's a lot of stats that are out there, but I've had trouble uh, really drilling into that and finding a lot of predictive value. What about you guys? Have you – do you guys have conviction around uh, win players really, and, like – Personally, like, I don't really get into the win stats. I don't even know that, that I've ever – I mean, in the last couple of years, even looked at stats. I, I feel like that's kind of an eye test thing, or, or it's just kind of like what comes with watching golf and paying enough attention to golf. You know, like I feel like good ball strikers do well in the wind. Like if you're hitting the ball really good and hitting the ball sweet spot, that's going to help. Like I mean, a couple of the PGA Tour pros that we that we talk to on a regular basis, that's exactly what they would say. Who hits it in the center of the club face the most? You know, that that mm-hmm. will control their distance. That will limit miss hits um, is, is really what counts. Uh, but I, I just, I don't know. I feel like the win thing is just more of an eye, an eye and feel. Like, what are my eyes telling me when I watch golf in windy conditions? And, and what does it look like, you know? Here's a tidbit that I have conviction on around wind that is predictive and that I don't think people think enough about. Uh, if it's really windy, that makes everyone on a much more even playing field. The more skillful golfer gets hurt by it being windy so you can narrow the range of outcome i mean obviously the range of outcomes are going to widen because the wind is crazy but in terms of like if rory's going to go out on a calm day and play someone he's at a much bigger advantage on a calm day than he is like a crazy wind day yeah it mitigates yeah. some of his skill yeah it's a great so point. It's that's that's a really good really good tip love it uh, i've gone back and forth a hundred times on it and and honestly I've actually gone the exact opposite direction from the ball striking part because I, I try to think about it when I'm – and, like, obviously I'm not a PGA Tour player, but, like, when I'm playing in really windy conditions, it seems like my putting suffers worse than anything. And I, this is just my opinion, but I feel like good putters have an even bigger advantage when it's windy Cause like if you're already a bad putter and then, you know, like your head's moving a little bit and you know, like you're taking, you're focusing on your strokes so much cause you're a bad putter. You know, like I just feel like the wind's going to mess with you even more than if it's calm. And I've not tested that, but that is my theory. Yeah. I get that theory and I think there's merit to it to a degree, but then I would make the counterpoint to exactly what I said before. I think a good putter, like if you're clearly a much better part than the other person and it's really windy where it's impacting cuts, like that's going to move both of you guys closer because it's just harder. Although like you're a horrible putter, that's going to hurt you more. You're going to be three putting all over the place and to your point. So, yeah. you know, you take like an average PGA tour putter versus like an elite PGA tour putter and you put them in windy conditions. I think that's going to put them closer together, but if you take that great player versus like an awful putter it might be an advantage because the awful putter might just start three putting all over the place, which you see, like, you know, that was, that was part of the reason, uh, you know, like the Arnold Palmer played so hard is he had those crazy yeah. greens and when the winds are picking up the balls moving. I mean, that Florida swing was crazy tough. Brutal. Yeah. Freaking <laughs> it was a ridiculous sweat too. We had some, uh, yeah. I had some good weeks in general on those and, uh, it was, it was a tough sweat. Uh, Sungjae chunking that last one on 18 was oh, man. so scary. I was all in on Sungjae, and it worked out, but I thought it was cruise control. Uh, and then that, that chunk on the wedge definitely opened up things. Yeah. Um, how much 
do you incorporate the betting markets in your process and, and specifically the head-to-head pricing? Yeah, so that's something I've been doing for a long time. And unfortunately, that has now come to the, the mainstream. Uh, I think there's a big edge there, especially watching line movement. Uh, you know, those markets are efficient relatively, and there's a huge signal there. And I think that's the biggest change in the overall DFS golf ecosystem is that many more people are paying attention to that. And the edges that were there in 15, 16, 17 are no longer really there. Based, I think people were looking at outright odds. And the outright odds aren't nearly as predictive as the matchup odds. And that is a huge part of the process. And watching how those move is a big factor. And now I almost think like there's an advantage to almost not fading it per se, but uh, if you have conviction on like a golfer is not in a matchup, that's probably a pretty good thing to look in, look at. And if you're not as high on someone who's moved as a big favorite, that could be another one. And uh, that's something that I'm definitely paying a lot of attention to. And I think it's a huge part of ownership as well. Yeah. Is there any percentage uh, or ownership percentage where you're just like, all right, if they're projected above 30%, then they're out of the player pool? Great question. Something I've struggled with a ton. And <laughs> I still play. Like Rory, like Rory, Rory has really been a, a struggle for me. I'm just like trying to go through some of these tournaments. I've played so much Rory this year. And he's been heavily owned. I mean, even I'm looking at some of these tournaments. Like, I have Morikawa, 82%. He's 27% owned. Matsuyama, 70%. He's 32% owned. I'll go back. Um, go back and actually let me look at the gen. The Genesis, is, I had no Adam Scott. Ended up doing decently well because I had a bunch of Varner. Varner was super frustrating that day. Oh, um, my God. I had him as an outright. Yeah. He, he oh. cost me a GPP. Yeah, I was all in on Varner, and at one point I was winning like half a million dollars on that tournament, and, oh. and unfortunately, it did not did not hold. <laughs> but um, yeah, he's a tricky one. I I, I was all in on DeChambeau, Rom, Morikawa, Rory, and Varner, and all those guys kind of imploded. And I had zero Adam Scott, but you know I played Rory that week. I mean, he was only 19% owned. I had him a bunch. Um, I had a ton of Xander that week. Xander was chalky. I heard later that he might be dealing with an injury. He was 24% owned. I had 87% DeChambeau. He was only 11%. But I go heavy on guys uh, that I have a lot of conviction around. And, again, the key to me is just finding those low-owned guys. I mean, I had a ton of Varner that week. He was 2.4% owned. So if you can find guys like that, um, you know, I had a bunch of Wyndham Clark. He was 2% owned. Um, He's one of those good putters that uh, the right scenario mm-hmm. that I'll look at. So, yeah. Yeah. That was rambling, but no, I like I, it. I, I, I don't, I will not, if I think a guy's an elite play, I will most likely have him, uh, but I will be cognizant of it. If I think Rory's going to be 40% and I'm still heavy on him, I want to make sure I'm not on Rory and all the rest of the chalk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I got okay. a few more, then we'll let you go. Peter, we appreciate it, dude. Uh, this has been good. Um, we've talked a lot about your process. How do you how do you feel when the process has when when you're in a slump, right? Like, let's say you go a couple oh, yeah. months and it just sucks. Like, what? How do you know you're in the right process, or or what do you do? When do you? Great panic? question. <laughs> I mean, I was panicking. I had 
Last year was one of my best DFS golf seasons, and I lost basically every week from like August on. So I had, in, after the Open, I was at like an all-time high watermark for, for DFS golf, and that was my best season. And then I went on just kind of traded even for a little bit, and then like mid-August on, I lost like every single week and lost big every single week. It sucks. Uh, fortunately, yeah. you know, the season kind of comes to a close, so you can regroup, but it's a tough process. And I think in DFS in general, like you always have to be evolving and it's hard. Like when did you, when have you lost your edge? Um, that's a question I think a lot of people ask themselves and, you know, you just keep trying to get better and you're evaluating your process versus other people. And um, I think you always have to be trying to improve. And if you feel like you aren't improving, that's, that's a time to really reconsider your approach. Um, so that's, that's the thing that I'm trying to, you know, if I feel like I'm in a slump, I want to work extra hard to, to try to find ways I could get better. And you want to obviously have that same, you want to always try to be, you always want to try to be getting better. But if you are slumping, like making sure you're not just kind of going through the motions, I think it's even more critical. Um, That's good. So yeah, it's tough. It's a tough yeah. thing. What do you guys do in your, I mean, I think it's also easy to get too high when you're, if you're winning and not, not get better too. So yeah, I, I might even be I barely know that feeling, trust me. But uh, I think I think people get caught up in their own success. And the worst thing you can do is just like get greedy and press it huge and like not improve. But I think yeah. Yeah, just evaluate my own process. I think I work really hard and I'm very diligent when I'm losing. And honestly, I, I think for me, I, if I'm just being honest, like I should work even harder when I'm winning as well. Yeah. That's yeah, I, I do the same thing, kind of. One of my um, mentors, when I started trading uh, out of school, you know, the, I think the, the best lesson he taught me was to love your losers. And, um, you know, like if you have a really bad week, you know, I like really go back and study, you know, what you did wrong, what you could have done different, and then just keep making those little adjustments every week. And, you know, like, I think that's how you really refine the process is, you know, you, you study your really bad mistakes and figure out why it was a bad mistake and then just keep learning from it. And, you know, I mean, anyone can get lucky and, you know, win one GPP and think they're, you know, the greatest DFS player of all time. But, you know, the, the reality is if you want to be consistently profitable, you know, like it's, you, you got to focus on the process and not the results. And, and, you know, I think that's something that a, a lot of the recreational players don't pay enough attention to. And that is so on point, focus on the process. And it's inevitable too. Like if you're grinding this stuff, you're going to have ups and you're going to have downs. Like it's trying to stay even keel. And the pro, like that was just so well said. Focusing on the process is so important. Yeah. Yeah. And and I like that, you know, you, you both mentioned like you're not when you, you know, sometimes like you, you acknowledge, okay, I'm in a slump, but, but not getting too caught up in, you know, okay, I'm just going to keep bullheaded, you know, I'm just going to be bullheaded about this and keep doing the same thing that I've been doing because I'm just in a slump and this is just what happens. Like, but, but trying to improve and find ways that you, um, you know, you, you don't have to make drastic changes immediately, but that you make changes and that you, um, you reevaluate parts of the process. It doesn't mean you have to clean the whole house, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, a, and it's, it's, it's really success, important like, to be. Okay. Go ahead, Ben. 
I was just going to say, it's just really important to be um, subjective too when you're going back and looking at your past results and saying, you know, like, did I make a good decision and I got unlucky or did I get lucky and made a bad decision? You know, like if you, if your highest owned guy hit, you know, 90% of his greens and reg, but averaged 34 putts per round, then, you know, I would say you made a good decision, even though the result was bad. Yeah. Yeah, totally. No, I think that's exactly like, figuring out okay was i on the right like is there signal or is there noise and deciphering your decision making based on that and that's again well said then does your process change for wgc's and majors how like how does it change wgc event and then majors wgc's i I think it's a lot closer to gambling um which i think (laughs) is still fun uh and, and i think there still can be edge i think finding that ownership is really important. And uh, I've historically done really bad in WGCs this year for Mexico. I actually did amazing. Uh, Hatton was, uh, Hatton's, Hatton was actually like, Hatton, Hatton's been a, a, a great golfer for me this year, which is funny. But uh, yeah. the WGCs historically, I've done really bad just chasing birdies in a huge way, which I still think is mostly correct. I mean, you still ultimately you're gonna have to pick the winners and stuff, but uh, you know a lot of people have kind of figured out that part of the process. What was the date on the WGC Mexico this year? Was that like mid February or something like that? After, was that before, after the right after the Genesis, right? Yeah. 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 All right. Let me see if I can find that. But uh, basically, I think for those you really want to be cognizant of ownership and like, do yeah. do you if you're really grinding, like, what's your edge here? Because it's a much trickier situation. So um, let's see here. So I, I did grind it for the WGC. I played less volume. Um, I was all in on Fleetwood. Let's see, no, that's not right. I was okay. Here's my here's my ownership. So I had 14 players. So I took less guys. 100% Rom, 80% Scheffler, 60% Ben Roy, and that was lucky as hell. Morikawa, 60%. Munoz, 60%. Sungjae, 40%. Uh, Hatton, 40%. Mori, 40%. Fleetwood, uh, 40%. So that, those, are, those are the kind of the situations that I have a bunch more tees. Um, figuring out that, that, to me, those are – you have to have much more conviction on an angle than other weeks. I think that's kind of the, the tricky part about the WGCs. I think those in general are much tougher to play and uh, you want to be, you don't want to be just going in firing with like half the player pool and playing yeah, max yeah. entries because you're going to light money on fire to the big. Yeah. Yeah. What about for majors? How do you approach the majors? Well, majors are tough because the pricing comes out before. Um, and they're tough in that you kind of know where the chalk's going to be and the chalk's also going to be the best fix because, uh, you know, you, you, the, the current form's not baked into the pricing. So those are tricky in that regard. And I think ownership is a really, really important thing. And you can find great golfers because it's obviously the best players in the world in those, those tournaments. Um, but I think the biggest thing that's different in the majors um, relative to other, you know, DFS golf weeks is that you have the opportunity to – really make different lineups for different types of contests. Uh, the Millionaire Maker and the Cheap Dollar Contest, you can 
play some of the chalkier options because you're playing in so many recreational players and you can take a couple guys that you might know to get leverage. Whereas in the high stakes, you know, eating the chalk is going to be so much more difficult to do because they're going to be so heavily owned. So to me, it's really just evaluating the differences in the contests that you're playing and making different lineups around that. Uh, I'd be curious to hear more about your guys' major process too because I do think that's a that's so obviously where the biggest money is and something that's super important to look at. I mean, personally, I, I stay out of the the Millie Maker. Um, Pat does as well. We just we're we're over it at this point. We were pretty deep into the Millie for the first few years. Um, just don't don't play it. So we'll we'll tend to take you know uh, the the additional bankroll that we usually set aside for those events and um, you know get in in some of the more you know the higher stakes single entry or three max entry tournaments. Um, and and go that route but uh so and and we're not really you know we don't really do a lot of the 150 max entry contests either um i don't think ben you do either what's your guys no, approach week uh, to week? what i'd love to hear I, tell me more about your approach week to week what what like you guys are how many lineups do you guys are, are you guys normally playing i'm usually playing about 14 like somewhere between 14 16 lineups um so you're you're making all your lineups by hand then for the most part, I like to make lineups by hand. I've, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm kind of. I, I mean, I, I've tinkered around with optimizers and lineup builders and things like that, but I, I like to. I like to make them by hand. I do. I generally like way. to make them too, but not, now I've kind of done a hybrid where I'm looking at optimizers and then like hand picking teams more. But obviously, no, I have done that. Like I, I've, I have looked at optimizers and and then like just used it for reference. But I'm usually. I mean, I, I stick to a lot of the the single entry and three max entry stuff. Cause I, I've never had the bankroll to, to like, you know, 150 entry, the contest that I want to, that I would want to max enter. Um, mm -hmm. I've just never, like, I don't, I don't have a, I don't really get going if I, if I'm doing like the mini max, I, that doesn't really get my blood flowing. If I, even if I max that out, I'm not interested in that. So I, I usually just, plus it's just so much more to manage for me. It's like more overwhelming and, it, I, it, and it doesn't it doesn't allow me to build them by hand so yeah I'm, I'm usually there Ben what are you uh what's what's your process uh it, it honestly it's kind of like pizza it, it varies completely week to week so like I try and base my entries off how confident I feel in the work I've put into that week and you know like if I feel like if there's a really big edge and course fit that people are overlooking or if I feel like the pricing is, you know, really messed up or if I feel like the chalk is going to be on players, I think have a really high likelihood of failing, then I'll ramp my exposure way up. And then on weeks where like I, you know, if I don't feel confident or if I'm not confident in the course fit or, you know, my research I did didn't really point to a really strong player pool, then, then I'll back it way down. I mean, you know, I think um, for, for the WGC, you know, I also have had very limited success in those. Yeah. And I mean, I literally, I think I played $20, I think. And, yeah, I think this um, is my first, first successful I'm Historically, <laughs> I know even after a great WGC this year, I have lost money on WGCs yeah. and I've lost. Yeah. And I, I normally, even this year, I had a good ROI. I played less volume than normal. 
Yeah. And I love what you said but, there, man. I think your, your, your conviction level, you should alter your, like everyone's like, Oh, be steady. Eddie always play the same volume, always have the exact same approach. I think that's a bad nah. way to look at things. I think you should, yeah. I mean, you should never like go way outside your bankroll or anything, but you should, you should fire more if you have a lot of conviction on a specific week or you think you found an angle that other people aren't looking at and you should fire more if you have conviction that the chalk's going to fail. I think people in general try to, you know, abide by like a very rigid uh, approach. And I think a lot of people would benefit from taking a more dynamic approach. And I think what you said there, Ben, is right on point. If you have more confidence, you should play more. And if you don't, you should sit out less. Like that's where the WGC is like we just talked about. Like, I mean, maybe some people are great at figuring out, uh, an approach there. Maybe there's some contrarian way of looking at things that I haven't thought of, but for the most part, I think it's much more of a, a gambling type situation and the overall ROI for the top players is probably less. Yeah. And I, I've learned that lesson the hard way. Um, and in 2015, I had a, a really good hit, had a monster week, thought I was uh, the sharpest person in DFS golf. And so, you know, I was just max entering everything every week and then just slowly started giving it all back. And I, I got to where I had, had literally given 50% of my winnings back. I was like, all right, this is not working. I have to completely change my process. And that's when I really started to kind of ebb and flow of, you know, like if, if the work I put in is really leading me onto this strong core that, you know, everything I look at is pointing to these, you know, handful of guys I feel really confident in that I'm going to ramp it up. And, you know, if everything's just scattered across the board and, you know, nothing's really lining up for me and I just back it way down and, you know, just play a couple, a handful of lineups just for shits and giggles. Peter, are you – this is the last last thing kind of I, I want to talk to you about contest. Um, like you, you talked about how you, you, you obviously do 150 lineups pretty much a week. Do you mess with any of those uh, single entry or three max entry tournaments that are, that are more the, the middle stakes or the lower stakes stuff? Um, or what, do you, what advice do you give to players, uh, your more intermediate or beginner players that may be listening on how they yeah, probably would have – approach those i think those are the best contests the single entry and the three max and i'm trying to get as much volume i try to get in those most weeks i think those are great tournaments to play um you know for the nfl and other dfs sports i think those are great uh you know a lot of the 150 max tournaments are lower buy-in um and you do have normally a little bit higher big percentage uh you can overcome that to a degree because a lot of those are the like the most popular contests but i do think you know, especially if you're playing a couple lineups, uh, I think there's a lot of uh, value in playing those. So, and it's also too, like figuring out what's entertaining and what's going to be fun for you. Like, yeah. you know, I think that's really sharp that you mentioned, like, okay, I yeah. could play 150 here, but it's not as fun for me. Like, I think that's a huge part of this too, especially during, you know, we're recording this during the quarantine and like, <laughs> you know, a, a big part of this is like entertainment and figuring out what gets you excited is a, a huge factor. And obviously making money is really great, but uh, you know, I think people want to compete and like, it's super hard to win. Like even playing 150 lineups, these people, it's super hard to win them and, you know, playing a lower entry amount uh, or playing a single entry, I think, you know, can be really fun, especially if you can win. And, 
you know, sometimes like the secondary tournaments might be really soft. Um, and it just depends on the style of play that you have. Like if you're just, you know, someone who is taking a really contrarian lineups and shooting for the moon, maybe you can get away with like having a great ROI because you know, can realize it by banking like the $4 or whatever that pays a hundred K to first. But if you're more, you know, really grinding this and taking higher equity plays, like there's probably a tournament that suits that style of play better. So again, it's kind of the same thing throughout this. It's like dynamic to who you are and what type of style you have. And that, that applies in DFS across the board. I mean, cash games have definitely dwindled versus tournaments, but there's a style of play that suits uh, different types of contests, and it's important to identify what type of player you are. Yeah, Pat and I get into this big Calcutta every year for the Masters, and I mean, like, just, just oh, that man. alone is all the entertainment I need. <laughs> oh, tell me more about that. That is, I do a bunch of Calcuttas for the Masters, so oh, I am big very, oh, yeah. so very, fun. very interested. I heard there's a like. Yeah, I was in a Calcutta in Dallas that ultimately got shut down because, like, there's some famous people in it and it got a bunch of money. I heard the biggest one, actually, is in Augusta. My, one of my friends was in it one time that – a big seven-figure uh, Calcutta that I heard about that uh, nice. I was hoping to get involved with, and obviously it's not happening this year. Yeah, there's but, a, there's Calcutta, a How great would it be if there's Calcuttas, like, every week? I mean, if we can never get to a oh, point man. where that's a legal thing, like – Calcutta's for golf. Um, I mean, I think DFS product's incredible, and it's actually I think DFS golf is like the best DFS product. But man, it'd be yeah. great if we had Calcutta's too. That's such a fun format. Yeah, well, Calcutta Labs. Yeah, Calcutta Labs. Dude, you're speaking my language. I look. I actually looked into the legality of like running in operator Calcutta, and there's a lot of state law and stuff. But that's a uh, whole other topic for uh, another podcast. But hopefully, we keep getting legal sports betting and. Hopefully yeah. there's a Calcutta nationwide at some point. Well, that's a yeah. fantastic segue into my last question, which is like, what do you think's next? Like, what do you think's next for golf, for DFS golf? Um, and maybe just, you know, if, there, if there's anything like really cool that maybe you're working on or you're looking into that you'd, you'd be willing to share. But um, I guess just what do you see on the horizon is the biggest thing. What do you think's coming? Well, I couldn't be more bullish on golf and DFS golf and betting on golf. I think the PGA Tour totally gets it. Um, one thing I have conviction on, uh, I'm sure you guys have seen, the big sporting event, the first sporting event that comes out of this quarantine is going to be a golf event. Yeah. Tiger, Phil, yeah. some famous quarterbacks. That's definitely yeah. happening. Um, yeah. i got some good news on that. So that'll be great. Um, hopefully we'll see more and more stuff come out like that. I think we'll see hopefully uh, in-round betting become a really big thing. You know, the showdown golf has really taken off. I would love to see a world where you can bet on every shot. I think the PGA Tour wants that. Uh, I hope that's something that, you know, you can just sit down watch a golf tournament and have an option to bet on literally anything and everything. And uh, I just couldn't be more excited about the future. And the PGA Tour has embraced it. They partner with DraftKings, partner with Action Network. Uh, they are all about this, and I think we see a ton of progressive stuff. And you know, I'm bullish on golf. I mean, you guys are positioned well. Like, there's just going to be a ton of opportunity. So, if you're a golf fan, I think the sport really takes off. Quarantine could be a hidden hidden blessing for uh, the sport. I think it's one of the easiest sports to bring back. You have no fans. You have a limited amount of players. You have the caddies. Hopefully, we have some testing so that we can you know say okay these guys are all clean or these guys have the antibodies. Hopefully it can get going. 
as one of the first sports and uh i'm really excited about the future hey peter we really appreciate it man we appreciate the time and uh your your insight into this is awesome we'd love to have you back on one of these days and hopefully we can uh, play around the golf together at some point when we can all get within six feet of each other yeah i'd love to <laughs> even if even if we're somehow we're in the same place we can travel again golf is a uh, good uh, activity for social distancing too so that's true, uh, that's it, was a, true. it was a blast coming on and uh, you guys have been pioneers in the industry and i really appreciate you having me on